Well, uh, welcome back, everybody, and welcome uh, for the first time, if you've just joined us. Um, this is the second session of, of the Reconnecting Europe, Bridging the Gap Between European Citizens and European Institutions um, half-day conference here between the European Institute and the Evans Foundation. Foundation. Um, in the last session, we began to explore some of the tensions within and also the potentials of a European-level authority. Um, it was interesting when Calypso was talking, she called it that a European authority, and she was resisting, and, and deliberately so, resisting the idea of ascribing it a state-like form, which um, she thought was one of its temptations, but perhaps uh, a direction in which it wouldn't be uh, profitable for the Union to, to go. Now, um, Kant, went, went, who she also mentioned in 1785, anticipating the emergence of something in, in the European space, called it uh, a great political body of the future. That was 1785. But by 2014, it's pretty clear that what's emerged so far is not just political, but, but perhaps predominantly economic. And um, indeed economic and monetary union, EMU, and its great symbol of the, not just the, the common market, as it were, but the euro itself, the, the, the common currency. Well, the history of the euro, its future, is still uh, very much uh, in the making. Both, both, both its history and its future are in the making, and I, I don't know, but uh, it sounded to me as if um, Calypso was a little bit worried about the kinds of divisions that the euro itself is producing rather than resolving. And um, I'm delighted to welcome two speakers who are going to talk about political economy, that interface between the political and the economic that's so alive in the European Union today. Uh, first, Bob Hanke, who's the Associate Professor of Political Economy in the European Institute, and then David Soskis, who's Professor of Political Science and Economics at the LSE. Uh, used to be with us in the European Institute, I'm afraid, sadly, moved on to better places, I'm sure. But um, looking forward to uh, both those contributions and then hopefully some time after that for some questions from the floor. But first of all, uh, hand over to Bob Hankey. Thank you, Bob. So, um, when, when Simon asked me <clears throat> for decision, I was happily... Um, thinking about what I was going to, to, to talk about but um, that was six months ago and in the meantime history has sort of taken over from me and what I want to do is um, explore a few sides to EMU that have effects on societies in ways that I think we can safely say we didn't quite understand at the time that EMU was being proposed, started, and so, so on. I, I'll 
There's only a little bit of, of economics in the talk. Most of it will be about effects of what is go going on. I, I should also say that I've, I've come a long way on this because um, I think 20 years ago, um, I was probably like many in Europe, both the continent as a whole, and um, uh, yeah, who, who were thinking about EMU. And we, we thought of this as, as a really good idea because there were all kinds of things wrong, we thought at the time, with how the European economy as a whole was, was operating. Um, for, for, for those of you who are old enough, you, you may remember high unemployment rates, um, you know, things weren't quite working as they should in the 70s and the early 80s, you had high inflation rates everywhere. And that was sort of our, our understanding of EMU was that that was one of the institutional vehicles through which we could make sure that life chances of citizens would be more stable, more secure, and that on the back of that, a sort of a, a European continent as an integrated kind of a political unit would, would emerge. That was 20 years ago. At the moment, if you look at EMU, what you see is almost the exact opposite of what we've, we, we were dre dreaming of at the time. And you know, as Keynes once said, when the facts change, I change my mind. Well, in that sense, I'm a Keynesian. So I'm, I'm increasingly pessimistic about both the future of EMU and the effects that EMU is having on societies in, in Europe. So if we now can dim the light a bit so that we can walk through this horror story to get, to get it, that would be, be nice. I am not going to talk too much about the crisis of EMU. I think for those of you who read the papers, and I don't think anybody in this room doesn't read the papers, um, the headlines speak for themselves. I mean, um, it's, it's, um, rather than bringing the people of Europe together, what it seems to have done is created an almost institutionalized ba barrier between different types of economies and so social economies almost inside the, Euro the Eurozone. What I want to do is step back for a moment and think about what, why is EMU such a complicated thing? What, what, what is going on there? What was the bit that we didn't see and what are the, the effects of that? And I think that the most important part of the story is that EMU as an institutional system imposes a set of hard constraints on governments that um, force them to do things that they may not necessarily have chosen to do on their, on their own. Um, and the key issue, the, of all the things that can go wrong with DMU, I'm stepping back for a moment, uh, as I said, the key issue is that fixing exchange rates, not, not nominal exchange rates in the way that DMU has done it, has imposed a set of very hard constraints on governments. And I want to pick up one particular point of this and then think about the implications with, with you. Basically, what EMU does is, so, in a, in a standard world in which you don't have a monetary union, countries always have to make sure that what they do in their economy doesn't create problems in terms of trade, in terms of how they interact with the rest of the world. That's, that's not, nothing new. Glo global and U European trade integration has been with us for basically since the Treaty of Rome 1957. But what, what EMU adds on top of that for those countries that are a member of EMU is that all of a sudden that trade is expressed in a single va va variable for these countries, and that is the relative inflation rate that you run in one economy 
re relative to the prices in economies that you trade with. Now, why is this important? Think for, think, think for a moment about two, two, two countries. Think of EMU, I always make this point. Think of EMU as consisting of two economies, called one DE and the other one RE for the rest of, of, of Europe, okay? DE is G Germany with the satellite. So every country around G Germany is trying to be the 17th land. Right? You think of the... Starts with the Danes and it goes all the way around to, to the Austrians. Okay, so each each one of them is sitting essentially is trading a lot with, with Ger Germany, and has a domestic economy that is organized in a way. This goes back to the the, the, the origins of the Deutschmark block in the early 1980s. Is organized macroeconomically in such a way that um, it shadows fundamentally what Ger Ger Germany is doing, and that becomes as a result, one integrated block. We used to call that the Deutschmark block in the 1980s. What is important there is that all of these economies throughout the 1980s, and you can actually include France in that as well, um, all of these e economies in the 1980s reorganized their domestic institutional setting for macroeconomic po policymaking to mirror, to a large extent, what Ger Ger Germany is doing. Uh, allow me. Now... And the target for each one of them was essentially the domestic inflation rate. That had to match in some form or other what was going on in Ger Germany. And that's, that's particularly important. I mean, there are, we can talk about the institutional mechanisms through which that was enforced. But what's particularly important here is that that meant that um, the entire wage-setting system in all of these, these economies, that is how people earn a living, that that has to be syn synchronized with what, what that happens in Ger Germany. And basically, under the Maastricht process in the 1990s, fundamentally the same thing happened with those economies that were not, or not yet, a part of, of what, what was going to become, what was then the Deutschmark block and what became the uh, EMU afterwards. Now, there's a very important thing to keep in mind here. If you have an inflation rate in your economy that is higher than the one that is that, that is higher than the one in those economies with which you, you tra trade a lot, what you do is you lose com competitiveness. I, I don't want to make a, a sort of a fetish out of com competitiveness, but that's how you should start to, to think about it. If you lose competitiveness, your growth rate falls, your unemployment rate goes up, and so, so on, right? So that's, that's, a, that's, that's the, the, the sort of the, the, the long and short of the, 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 the system that we had um, and still, still ha have in place. What's important now is that most economies... Before, in fact, all economies before the introduction of the euro had one safety valve, which is the nominal exchange rate. If you become too uncompetitive, you can always devalue a currency, and then you sort of give yourself some breathing space. Sometimes France had to do it five times between 1965 and 1985, but that doesn't matter. You, you, you buy breathing space. And with the breathing space comes the possibility of implementing a set of po political economy options for your economy that you no longer have when you fix the, the nominal exchange rate because these devaluations no longer are possible. The devaluations are not costless, but they are a safety valve in, cases, in, in, the, in case you, you hit, a, hit, hit a crisis. Now, one of the crucial things about <coughs> fixing the, the nominal exchange rate is that you exclude all these options that you had before that was part of, so to speak, your social model, right? And if you think of 
Um, the type of ca capitalism, or I should say the types of capitalism that you find on the continent, what you di discover is that some of these can work extremely well with this hard currency constraint, with, an, with, an, with a nominal exchange rate that's fixed and a low inflation model, and others are much less able to uh, do so. Now, like I said, that wouldn't matter if you were not in a fixed nominal exchange rate world. In this case, you, you are. Now, what are the kind of things that suddenly begin to change? What are the kind of options that governments no longer have under EMU that seem to be extremely important in the way societies in Europe have adjusted? The first thing is that, and this, this has actually become more pregnant with the crisis of EMU rather than less so, is that governments need to go through reforms. So much is obvious. They, 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 they always have to do so. They have to do so in order to adjust to what is going on outside them. They have to think about how to, to reform the financial market, the labor market, and so on. Now, labor markets have a very important effect, which is that the, 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 if you reform the labor market, some of the people that, you, um, that are in the labor market will be losers and others will be winners. That's, that's always the case. In the past, governments could, as it were, use social bribes to make sure that those who were the losers would still be on board for the reforms. And, and you know, France is a classical case of that. In the 1980s, France reformed practically its entire economy and did that by, think of Renault, no, they laid off more than half of their workforce in five, five years' time. The Ministry of Labor picked up the bill put them in early retirement and similar kind of pro programs, and you could move, move on. What EMU does is basically uh, make that option no longer viable for all kind, kinds of reasons that we can talk about. Part is institutional through the Stability and Growth Pact and the constraints that that puts on fiscal po policy for, for government. Part of it is also because um, it's, it's not obvious <coughs> under such a new re regime what it is you should reform and what the effects of that are. So this kind of <coughs> social an a anesthesia, as, as Jonah Levy from, from Berkeley calls it, that kind of a, of a policy option is no longer available in the way th that, that it was. The second thing is, <coughs> since so much of the performance of your economy depends on your inflation rate, that's, that's what I started out with, since so much of that depends on the inflation rate, what you have then is that those economies that still do well go actually through a whole system of wage repair pressure. If you look at what happened in Germany over the last 20 years, is essentially Germany is competing on wages with the rest of, of, of Europe, and the satellites of Ger Germany are therefore do, doing exactly the same thing. Now, what, what, what that implies is that it's, it's, it's very hard to imagine a macroeconomic regime emanating from there that would be built on consumption and demand in the way that we would normally expect a more or less mature economy to, to operate, and that instead it, it builds only on exports and the things that are associated with it. Now, you, you might want to say, well, but, but that's good if you can export a lot. In fact, that's the prevailing view in Ger Germany. The, 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 there's, a, there's a nice, uh, the, the German word for current account is Leistungsbilanz, and that translates as the performance balance. They don't think of it as a current account where you give and take. It's about being better than, than, than the rest. Now, that, that's, that, that's, that, that produces a mindset in which 
current account deficit countries no longer are treated as if they are performing economies, regardless of whether they, they, they are or not. They treat them as, in that sense, as second-class economies, right? And that's the, the, the tension that you see emerging between the creditor nations, basically in the northwest of the, the continent, and the debtor nations, which are basically in the south of the continent, is nothing else than the, uh, uh, um, the, the, the um, expression of that sort of dual citizen, economic citizenship, if you want, that's emerging on the, on the continent. The third thing is, since much of, of continental Europe has a well-developed and usually reasonably well-functioning pu public sector, well, that public sector is coming under pressure for exactly the same reasons. Uh, again, take Ger Ger Germany, which is, as we read in the papers all the time, the poster boy for how you should adjust to, e to EMU. Germany has underinvested in education and higher education for the last 20 years. Its infrastructure is crumbling. About half of its um, Air Force jets are unable to fly, I, you know, unless you want to stop tanks with them by stacking them on top of each other. I'm not entirely sure what you do with, with that. Um, broadband pe penetration is acceptable in the cities, but nothing once you go outside. All those things that matter, if you think of you know, what a long-term growth rate would, would be about, decent infrastructure and decent education, all those things are basically underinvested in. And this is the best-performing economy in Europe. Right? So basically, what is going on is that EMU has imposed a, a, a rather draconian austerity regime on, on everybody, not only because of the choices that were made in Brussels, Berlin, and Fra Frankfurt, but also because the regime itself imposes a, a set of new constraints. And for, for, for those of you, this is what I will close with, for, the, for those of you who, who worry that I'm probably too pessimistic, I, 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 I suggest you, you have a look at two countries that I can think of that are not in the Eurozone. One is the UK and the other is Sweden. Um, and compare them with what is going on. What does Sweden do? Sweden still has a very vi vibrant export sector, but it also has a very vibrant do do domestic demand. And the effect is that Sweden has what you would now call a balanced growth model, where, you know, to, to, to some extent, it, it accepts the constraints of the international economy, but keeps on working um, within the model adjusting as it goes along within the, the model that existed for most of the post-war per, per, period there. The, the UK is a different story because in the UK the political choices were made in a different way. But the fact that political choices could be made in the UK means that the degrees of freedom that the country faces are still considerably higher. I suspect if you were to talk to Renzi to Valls and Hollande and a couple of other people I mean, in Spain, I don't think they think of the world anymore in terms of the degrees of freedom they have but the lack of the degrees of freedom they have. Now, if this is true, and I begin to fear that this is a, an inadequate depiction of what is go, going on on the continent, if this is true, then we're in for a lot of trouble because it means that the representativeness that you would associate with a democracy of the sort that we have, that that is now undermined structurally by what DMU is doing. Thank you. Now, we're going to have to see how we can set this up for David. Um, it says it's ready to use, yes. which is good. <laughs> so I, <clears throat> I, I want to take the challenge of the... You might need to use the mic. Sorry. I'm going to take the 
challenge of the question which was posed to me and which is can Europe's member states sustain the European social model? <clears throat> and I'm, <clears throat> I'm not going to talk about the crisis and the post-crisis period and therefore I'm not going to talk very much about the about the Eurozone. I'm more interested in the question of we've had over over decades in Northern Europe a model which very broadly speaking uh, had an effective welfare state a reasonable degree of redistribution and a way of dealing with poverty and that model has progressively become under pressure and indeed in many countries including in Northern Europe that model no longer operates in an effective way for instance this country is a very obvious example Uh, we no longer have the type of effective social model which we had three, three or so decades ago. The question really is, <clears throat> is it possible to imagine that this can be recreated in Europe, that you can recreate a European social model, or is that simply not the case? Now, like Bob, I've become increasingly pessimistic about what one can do but I think the really interesting question is what is it about the broadly intended European economy which has made it progressively so difficult for any what one might think of as a social democratic move so difficult to have a social democratic move back to what we might consider decent ways of organizing societies. And I think to understand this, simply looking at the way the European Union works is not the right way to go. In my view, there have been massive changes and indeed the, the, the question here hints at that massive changes in the way in which economies have worked which are making it progressively harder to have effective social policies. And I want to talk really about just what those changes have been because in large part the changes which have taken place in our economies and societies uh, I think have been hugely positive but they've also carried with them really major negative uh, implications in terms of social cleavages which have in turn changed the way in which the political systems in most of the advanced countries of Northern Europe uh, operate. And I want to end up by asking why is it that 
the Nordic countries still seem to be able to maintain relatively decent societies? What is it about the Nordic systems which have enabled them to uh, escape some of the worse consequences which, uh, which I think we haven't been able to escape? So the... <clears throat> The, the, the major development which I really want to talk about is the development of uh, what are very often called knowledge economies. I'm going, just going to talk about the advanced countries in, uh, in Northern Europe. And the advanced countries in Northern Europe have progressively become what are very frequently called advanced uh, uh, knowledge economies and one, so one very obvious characteristic of this is that in uh, almost all the advanced economies in the world but certainly the advanced economies in northern Europe with the, <clears throat> with the single exception of uh, Germany and Austria but it's, but it's an exception which can be explained more than 50% of young people in current cohorts go through higher education. Now, if I think back to the 1950s, in the 1950s, about 10% of young people went to university. In fact, in the 1950s, uh, something like 70% of school children left school at the age of, in in most countries, at the age of 14 or 15. We have a totally incredible change in the way in which society works because today in all these advanced economies, roughly 90% of children complete what what the OECD calls upper secondary education at the moment and more than half in uh, almost all these countries go through or will be going through higher education. Now, if you think about this in historical terms, this is the most totally incredible transformation from worlds, from the whole of history, which has been dominated by small elites with most people having relatively standardised jobs to, to do, We now live in a world where for a large proportion of the younger population, they go to university. I'll show that most of the jobs which these people do involve a lot of discretion uh, and so on. So we live in a world which is totally different to the way in which historically we've ever seen the the world work. I'll go through quite a lot of statistics, just statistics and graphs to show the various different ways uh, the, these advanced countries work. But one of the huge problems which has come about as a result of it, this is that just as, as it were, half of you, <laughs> all you young people here are going to do incredibly well out of this system, have relatively interesting, rich lives. So there is a huge 
cleavage which is emerging uh, where other people do far less well uh, as, a, as a result. And one of the very obvious cleavages which is developing in this country is the, is the fact that those who haven't uh, had higher education uh, are becoming more, more and more at risk of having their jobs uh, essentially computerized. This is, and there are, uh, there's, there's a lot of very interesting work going on at the moment, which suggests that over the next uh, over the next ten years, the period from 2015 to 2025, something like 40 percent of jobs. This is work related to this country in the United States. Something like 40 percent of jobs uh, are vulnerable to the, uh, to, to the probability of computerization. Now, this in principle should be a very good thing. We're getting rid of, we're getting rid of nasty jobs. We don't have a good way at the moment of dealing with the people who lose their jobs as a result. And this is a... This is a major problem for... These are, not, these are not the classic, really multiply disadvantaged poor people. These are people, a lot of whom have what they think of as middle-class jobs, which they thought when they started them 20, 30 years ago were jobs which were going to, as it were, be available through their, through their careers and who are now losing them. And we don't have... This is somewhat different across the different countries of Northern Europe. We don't have any system in this country for retraining people who haven't had already a fairly high level of education. Now, it turns out that the people... This is a very gendered thing. It turns out the people who are most hard hit by this are middle-aged men, late middle-aged men, because, again, this is one of these big generalizations and one's talking about relative distributions, they don't have very frequently the social skills to enable them to move to a whole range of occupations like social caring and, uh, and, and so on, which women... Uh, to, to a much greater extent have. So it's not very surprising in this, in this economy, but, and there are parallel, there's a very strong parallel in France, uh, that we have a, a, a party like UKIP, which captures exactly these middle-aged men whose education does not include University, and it's a very fascinating statistic, which uh, the Guardian. I, I need to say, I, I get my I get my emotional sucker for from reading the Guardian every morning, um, and moral anger as well. Uh, so what, what one does: coffee in the Guardian, and then on to the Financial Times for being serious. The Guardian had a really uh, interesting. Uh, survey which it did of UKIP candidates compared to 
Labour, Conservative and Lib Dem candidates. And the question which it asked was simply, um, have, you, have you been to university? And <clears throat> there are, in the Lib Dem, Labour and Conservative cases, roughly speaking, 10% or so of candidates in those three parties have not been, had not been to university. 35% of UKIP candidates had not been to university. This is a, and indeed, and there was a huge proportion of them, much, much higher proportion of them were men uh, than in the, in the other parties. So this social cleavage, which the knowledge economy produces, is reflected in politics. And I'm going to come on later to look at why the political system has become a, a system which it's so difficult to, or so, in principle, hostile to a European, uh, a European social, social model. Well, let me start off with... Let me start off with... Uh, And this probably would have come about without the EU, has been the creation, we, we should be very straightforward about this, you live in Northern Europe, you live in hugely, hugely prosperous, knowledge-based, social and economic nations. And they cover, they cover large parts of mainly Northern, North, Northern Western Europe, uh, the UK, the Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, the Nordic countries, West Germany, not East Germany, Austria, Switzerland, uh, parts of northern Italy, um, the, nice, the, nice, uh, the nice regions of northern Italy, uh, Umbria, Tuscany, uh, Emilia-Romagna, uh, Veneto, and so on, as well as, as, well as Piedmonti and Lombardy. Um, they cover parts of France. I mean, the it's very interesting, actually, how France seems not to have benefited from knowledge economy as much as the other countries of Northern Europe uh, have. And Ireland has, in part, I don't want to get into any, uh, any sort of complex discussion about exactly how the Irish economy works at the moment or how... Um, how well educated the Irish are, blah, 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 blah. Now, what is fascinated, what's fascinating about these knowledge economies is that they are almost entirely in urban areas. They're almost entirely in cities with industry or service sector related, directly and directly related, Research universities. Research universities 
turn out to be super important for the development of knowledge economies. Uh, you go to, uh, you go, you go, you come to London, you go to, to the LSE, uh, and very typically you then make net, network contacts. You join so-called skill clusters. You move into high-value-added activities within the city, or or uh, or you move into a whole range of employment now, which has comes up in the in culture, in entertainment, uh, as well as in medical profession and and education, which feed off or respond to these. Uh, these uh, high-value-added activities and these social networks. These are things which have developed hugely in these successful big cities. So they have been massively beneficial for large parts of the population, but it's especially younger, university-educated uh, who, who, who are benefiting, and in particular, the huge beneficiaries, huge beneficiaries of the knowledge economy have been women. Knowledge economy has played a major, major role in liberating, uh, liberating women from the type of career structures which they had, the very limited careers which they had in the 50s and 60s in the Fordist World, uh, world economy. It's also been beneficial for the less educated, lower level service sector workers who live in big cities because the demand for them, of course, has also increased uh, as a result of people moving into the big cities. And one of the most, one of the most striking phenomena of the, of the 90s and the 2000s, it's a phenomenon which is true pretty much everywhere. It's very noticeable in this country, in France, and in the United States. There has been a big move by professionals into the big cities. These were the cities which were collapsing in the 1970s and the 1980s as industrial jobs fell and as the inner cities in the United States became more and more problematic, true of London as well, huge problems in Paris, these are all the cities which are now reversing and in the last 20 years have been benefiting greatly from this massive movement, which often called gentrification, of young professionals into, uh, into cities like, like London. So this is a relatively a relatively recent movement. What we've got then are, we, 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 we're, so, we're so brought up as academics and as uh, political scientists and even economists to think in terms of, the na- of nations, but actually we need to think far, far more nowadays about big cities and how geography works and how geography divides regions up into 
strong, powerful regions and regions which don't have economic, economic power and the people who are excluded by that. And if you go to the, if you go to the, north, of, the north of this country and you go to a whole range of towns in the north of England, what you will see are the people who've lost out by this, whereas if you move around London, you see the, you see huge benefits of the, of the knowledge economy. So we really should be talking, we should be talking and thinking about cities, and I'm sure increasingly in the future in social science, we will be thinking about cities rather than thinking uh, just about countries. But I'm going to talk a lot about countries in what, uh, in the rest of my, in the rest of my talk. Let me, um, whoops. Just to give, you, to give you an example of, uh, of this, these are actually the uh, cities in the world which have got the highest uh, <coughs> patent citations in the U.S. Patent Office. This is citation, citations, uh, cities per capita, sorry, patents in cities per capita in 2014. Now, actually, very big cities get excluded by this because their population is so large in London that tends to uh, reduce, the, re, re, reduce <clears throat> them because per capita. But if you look at these cities, these are the sorts of cities which are the cities in, the, in Europe and, in, uh, and actually in the United States, which are the cities which have got the highest... Pattern. But one thing to note about this, just incidentally is that we're no longer talking about America. We're no longer talking about America as being the country which dominates innovation. It's highly, highly innovative as a country. It does particular sorts of innovation, does more radical innovation. But when you look at Sweden or Germany, Sweden and Germany are fantastic world leaders in innovation. And it's quite wrong, as it were, to think of Northern Europe as not being highly innovative. But if you look, you can, if you look at the, well, if you just, just go down through that, that list and you see a whole lot of, of European, Northern European cities. When you look at the, when you look at the uh, map, it's really interesting because you've got the southeast of, England and London. You've then got this big area, which follows the line actually in many ways, which would be this area of Belgium and the Netherlands going through the whole uh, left centre of Germany down to Baden-Württemberg and Bavaria then to Switzerland, uh, a bit in Austria, and what you see here, the Italian patent rate is not very high, but in exactly these areas you expect in Italy, you have a perfectly reasonable, uh, <coughs> reasonable level of patents. When you look at France, it's very, you can see in France actually, how the level of French patenting is actually, it's largely around the Lyon-Grenoble area. A little bit in Toulouse, a little bit in, in Montpellier, and then, of course, in, in, uh, in Paris 
in the Ile de France. But if you look at if you look at France as a whole, you can see that France, like uh, like the north of England, actually in this country, France has a pretty low rate of patenting over a large part part of the country, and then go up to the Scandinavian countries, and again you have whole pockets of really concentrated patenting in Denmark, in, in Sweden, uh, on the west coast of, of, uh, of Norway, and of course in, in Finland. So <coughs> we've moved to a geographically really, really fragmented pattern of knowledge, uh, knowledge economies. Whoops. Don't, don't, don't look at all these figures, but the other fascinating thing is that this huge increase in what, what I'm calling the knowledge economy, what I'm calling the knowledge economy, takes place in the, from the 1990s on. It's much, very, very more muted in a whole range of ways. We'll see other ways in a minute. It's very muted in the 1970s and the 1980s. And then it suddenly takes off in the 1990s and 2000s. And then it actually, if, I'm not going to talk about the crisis, I said, but it levels off during the, during the crisis. But you can see that if you go, we're talking about in... Uh, at the end of the 1980s, 59,000, 64,000 per annum. And then it just zooms up uh, by increasing vastly more each, each decade. The other very interesting thing from this set of figures here, which, which you, you may notice, is that Western Europe, the, 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 left, the, the, the right hand, Column. This column is the United States patents, patents in the United States. This, this column is patents outside the United States. They're actually quite largely Western European patents. What, what's noticeable about that is if you go back to the 1950s and 1960s, Western Europe was miles behind the United States in terms of patenting. Whereas by the, 19, by the 2000s, Western Europe has actually caught up and is, uh, is, is very close to the, to the American level. Let me... Here's another really interesting slide in relation to... Um, university degrees. So if you... I, I want again to make the, the point that the 1990s is where things shoot, shoot up. If you... It's very, pretty interesting, actually, to look at the number of women with higher degrees. If you go back to 1950, this is the UK. All sorts of qualifications, these figures, by the way. If you go back to 1950, only 261 women got higher degrees. That's master's degrees plus doctorates. 
ten times, uh, ten times more, uh, eight times more men got higher degrees. Then there's this sort of gradual catch-up period. There is a huge increase uh, between 1990 and that, uh, between from 1990 to 2000, and then a huge increase again, doubling in the uh, in the 2000s. And now uh, women have actually uh, women are actually getting more higher degrees than than men are. The point about the this big increase you can see most dramatically when you look at first degrees, when you look at 1990 here and compare it with 2000. And then when you compare 2000 here with 2010. And now we're in a situation, and this is the point I was making about how this has particularly benefited women compared to men. We're now in a situation where women have got 30, are getting 30% more degrees uh, per annum than, than men are. If we look at what's happening to um, the nature of work, we see, this is essentially across Northern Europe, we see that the share of creative workers in, uh, in the workforce, 51%, versus so-called problem-constrained problem-solvers, and only 25% of so-called tailorized workers, which is uh, another word for Fordist workers. If we look and see what's happened to jobs, we can see that this is taking Switzerland, Germany, Denmark, and the UK, and it's looking to see what's what of what if you if you take the uh, fifth the top fifth type of jobs twenty years ago versus all the other fifths of jobs, and you ask where did job growth go over come from over the last twenty years? Those big black lines in all these countries show that it's jobs which were in the top fifth of jobs uh, in t 20 years ago. These are the jobs which have hugely increased and other jobs, uh, other jobs have fallen. Uh, I can't resist this little bit of data. This is the growth of CEO pay in America. I mean... It's pretty, it's pretty substantial, actually, before 1990. That's to say the vertical column is the ratio of CEO pay compensation to that, the, the compensation with the average production worker. So it's, it's, uh, in 1990, you can see it's um, about 70 times. So CEOs got 70 times more than production workers in 1990. What, what's actually really striking about this, this, uh, this, this data here is this again, it's very similar to the UK by the way, this again shows how you get this huge change taking place in the 1990s and the, uh, and the, two, and the 2000s. Uh, now the, 
The most interesting thing from the point of view of the um, of the of the EU. Five, three minutes more. He, he runs the show. Okay. If you if you look at this uh, graph here, what this shows is also in the 1990s that the 1990s and 2000s have this very big increase. It's actually this continuous line here. Starts off rising in 1990 and goes on rising in the amount of foreign direct investment. Now, one of the things which the knowledge economy has brought about has been that knowledge, knowledge competencies uh, are now distributed around, that follows the, follows the map actually of patents in Western Europe, are distributed around in different parts of Western Europe and also the, also the United States. That means that knowledge-based multinationals, most of the big multinationals apart from the, uh, apart from the natural resources multinationals and are knowledge-based multinationals, are increasingly setting up subsidiaries to tap into these different areas of knowledge competences. So one of the really interesting things is this intricate, intricate web of connections via FDI across Northern Europe, which means that people, skilled workers, researchers, stay in the area where, where this knowledge is Multinationals come to them and buy subsidiaries or set up subsidiaries there to be able to tap into knowledge sources. So we've moved to a situation where in, instead of multinationals being these dominant forces who may be able to dictate to governments, actually we've, that's changed very radically Multinationals, at least the knowledge-based multinationals, are more and more dependent on the various pockets of knowledge around the advanced world for their being able to have the access to knowledge which they, which they want. So this now comes down to, to saying that we live in a world where... Um, the advanced nation state, sorry, I'm, I, I am, I'm really very conscious of where I, I, even if I'm looking at you, I'm really conscious of being here, don't worry. Hi. Um, we're moving into a situation where the advanced nation state has become more and more important more autonomous, but also at the same time as becoming more autonomous, more closely interrelated to other advanced nation states. So we've moved, and it's very evident in the way in which decisions now get taken in the European Union, we've moved to a situation where essentially now dominant nation states 
take the decisions in the, in the European Union. We've moved to a situation where governments of advanced nation states are becoming more important and not less important. And that then says, if we're going to talk about social policy and the European social model, we can no longer look at the European Union as the place where the European social model is going to come from or even be sustained by. The European Union is now a mixture of totally different, uh, totally different economies as, as has been implied by the fact that this knowledge economy, the knowledge economies have been in the advanced nation states of, of Europe but also the politics of the social model has become more and more evidently focused on the, on the national governments and politics of the, advanced, of the advanced economies. Well, where do we go from here? Well, what we have to do now is to say, what are the, what are the coalitions which form in, uh, in the advanced economies like the UK, but also like the Northern European uh, economies in Scandinavia and, and so on, what are the coalitions which form which might allow redistribution or a strong welfare state? And one of the huge problems is that the winners of the knowledge economy seem very unprepared to pay for the losers of the knowledge economy. It's very straightforward in this country, but you see a very similar phenomenon in most parts of Northern Europe, including Germany. Germany has been big change in this respect. Uh, Belgium and the Netherlands also, which used to be hugely redistributive economies, have changed in this respect. It's really only the Scandinavian economies where political coalitions still uh, are uh, prepared to pursue pretty redistributive and effective uh, welfare state policies. Now, um, if one says is the welfare state dead, say, in this country, the answer to that is certainly no, but there has been a very, very interesting shift in the debate on the welfare state, which corresponds to this very big shift, if you, if you go back over three or four decades, from a world in which the blue-collar worker was a very, very significant class in most of the countries of northern, of northern Europe, including this country, to a world in which the blue-collar worker as a class, working class, has simply quantitatively collapsed. And their place has been taken by uh, professionals, of, of professionals, managers, technicians, and so on and so forth of, uh, of all sorts. But in particular, there's been a building up of 
professional women as a class which political parties are now being forced to pay more and more attention to in thinking about the welfare state. So that the so-called work-life balance policy has become, uh, in more and more political parties, a more and more centrally debated question. Now, okay, that's one thing which has happened. Why are the poor so pushed on one side? And why isn't that the case in Scandinavia? Now, this is a really, really open question, and there are several different answers which are being given at the moment. But a very interesting, a very interesting issue is this. Um, I, I'm basically, uh, because, I was, I, because I was an economist for most of my life, I find it very difficult not to think in terms of uh, people's individual interests, and therefore my natural reaction is to say... Uh, governments don't give money to the poor because it means people like me have to pay higher tax and I'm not prepared to do that. Um, of course, I would be very happy to pay higher taxes, but there we are. The very interesting discussion, a very interesting academic discussion, which is increasingly taking place nowadays, is do people implicitly have some set of normative beliefs which determine whether they think it's a good thing or not to give money to the to get to redistribute money to the poor and this is the this has become a whole issue around deservingness what under what circumstances do people think that the poor are deserving. Now here there really seems to be a very big difference between Scandinavia and much of the rest of Western Europe and uh, of Northern Europe and the one way of looking at this is that in Scandinavia uh, there is a huge emphasis on making sure that children from disadvantaged backgrounds get well educated and there's also a lot of evidence in Scandinavia that children from disadvantaged backgrounds A. take advantage to take full advantage of the possibility of getting well educated and B. if they do get well educated then they do well in society and in later life and there seems to be insofar as this sort of moral discourse if that's what it can be called applies to Scandinavia and doesn't apply to a country like this, it's that if in this country there's redistribution to the poor, including poor children, that isn't seen as going, and correctly is not seen as going, into uh, really enabling poor children to get well-educated and move up inside, in part because we start off from such an inegalitarian base as far as poor children are concerned. And increasingly that's been a problem in Germany. Very much connected with German unification. But it's clear that something like that may well have, in an underlying way, attached to Schroeder's move to create a de facto so-called dual society in which it was 
clear that the, that the poor were to have much less, less help. So I think there are really interesting issues at individual national cases, but it's very interesting how it's the societies where there's already a lot of equality and so that people right at the bottom do actually get can actually children right at the bottom because very much focused on children this, these sorts of arguments actually can use money from the state or resources from the state or the state can use those resources to move them up through the education system and into good, into good careers okay I'll stop at that point We do have, looks like, about 20 minutes for uh, some questions. Um, if, if we've got a microphone, so if, you, if I point you out, please, um, please wait for the mic to get to you. And uh, secondly, uh, if you could keep your questions relatively short, and uh, speakers too, if you could keep your answers relatively brief, we can get more people to ask. So um, if you just indicate by raising your hand, we've got one at the front here. Bernard Casey, I'm interested in these workers in the new economy. Um, it is the case that lots more people... Microphone, please. It, it is the case, I'm interested in people in the large economy, it is the case that lots more people appear to have certain qualifications than they used to have in the past. I might express an interest here. My father left school at 14 and ended up as a university professor. That kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. Actually, you have to have the piece of paper, but it doesn't actually make one a, uh, a, 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 a more educated person or a possibly a better thinker than before. But I want to see where this comes out in the jobs that people do. Because it's all very well to say that certain kinds of jobs which have certain kinds of titles have become more important over time. There might well be a title inflation that goes alongside a grade inflation um, in academic systems. Um, I mean, let's just take the, 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 the statistic about UKIP. Okay, 35% of UKIP candidates had not been to university, implies that 65% actually had, which doesn't suggest that universities were doing a particularly good job on that basis, I might suggest. But I want to see where these higher quality jobs, as measured by a cross-section that you presented from um, the European... Um, uh, working conditions survey. <coughs> That's a cross-section. Yeah. There is no trend in that hat, and I'm not quite sure what is being measured. What I am actually conscious of is a large number of graduates, if they actually do get, and I'm not quite sure what a graduate job is anymore, what I'm conscious of is a high level of proletarianization of high-level jobs so that people can actually only react according to scripts. And that goes right up to investment bankers. And if you talk to investment bankers, they will tell you exactly the same thing. Okay, story. you'll have to... Uh, yes, uh, otherwise you're being a very bad example of the first question. So we'll uh, <laughs> take that, please, David. 
you, you, you are allowed to speak back. Yeah. Um, so, so I mean, first of all, I think there's th- things are very have been confused by the by the, by the crisis, and that I know. I, but I was uh, I was mentioning it as part of an answer to your to your point that the crisis has I think meant that there's uh, the that the supply of jobs has has definitely first of all went down and then much more slowly came came up I, I on the on the general point I, mean, I think clearly one needs to. You, one needs to have these measures, which the uh, which the EU um, institution has, but they certainly seem to conform to the view that when you look at the characteristics which people, which jobs have, and the qualifications which people have who fill the jobs, they are uh, jobs which require more discretion. If you if one's if if, uh, if if it's as it's the case that more and more people go through higher education, my own view is that they actually improve the the type of work which people do. If people go to if people have got been through higher education and they go into a they go into a job which previously hadn't been a job held by by graduates, my view is in general those jobs get get improved, people, smarter people are there and they work they work out they, they work out or management works out ways to make those jobs do more things. And that's the that seems to me a real the the I mean my own view is that the it's the information technology revolution which has driven a great deal of this. And the fact that if you're doing a job where you've got access to uh, to the internet and so on, you, you're working with other people doing that. Then certainly, if I found myself in that position and it'd be previously been occupied by somebody who had, didn't have as good an education and didn't have access to those things, I would be. In, I, my guess would be I'd be able to improve it. Okay, listen, I just want to try to get you to talk across each other's talk as well, just for a moment, because. Um, for, for all the world, it looked like you could have been talking about different worlds. I mean, let's say Bob was giving a picture of the effects of uh, EMU, which were very, very clear about the kinds of distribution of goods that you were going to get over, uh, over, the, over Europe. And, uh, David, you picked up a story which didn't have to mention that once. Absolutely. And um, I'm just intrigued to know whether you think that Actually, the, the 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 narrative that you're giving has a much deeper structural level than anything that the the bubbling of the euro on top does, or whether in fact there is an interaction there. And for Bob, whether you can see that that there may be, um, are you, would you be willing to see that the the kind of account you gave would also interact on on David's? So I think obviously, obviously I spent a large amount of time working on the on the euro and the macroeconomics of the of the euro and all the, the, the problems, but I've I've increasingly 
thought that one needs to, that, that part of the problem of the way most people think about Europe and the problems of Europe uh, is that they just look at the European institutions, they look at the standard, standard uh, questions about the, say, German policy in relation to macroeconomics, and that what one really needs to do is to really step back and ask, are there deeper, longer-term things going on which fundamentally change ones, change the way in which uh, the European economy works? Now, I'm, I'm, let me say right to start, I'm absolutely uh, not hostile to Europe and I think actually this whole move to a knowledge economy is very interesting because the people who benefit from knowledge economy tend to be people who are actually in favour of Europe and it's the losers from the knowledge economy who are hostile to Europe but I do think one needs to really step back a long way to understand these deeper cleavages which are cleavages within individual societies as well as cleavages which we see between north and south, south of Europe to understand why, uh, why it's so difficult to think in terms of European solutions and why I just tend not to think very much in terms of Europe uh, when I think in terms of social policy which I was talking about. I mean there are other things, if, we, if we're talking about innovation I ha would have somewhat different views in terms of, in terms of how I think about, about policy. But in terms of social model, I, I guess my, my concern about talking in the way I did was to try and emphasize it's these deeper, longer-term changes which are taking place in the advanced societies which make it really difficult to think about doing things at a European level. Okay, thanks. And Bob, the other way? Just a, a small thing, I think. What's important about the story that David tells is that, regardless of whether it's, it's right not, or wrong... Nothing, Bob, <laughs> Bob, I should, I should, I should, I should <laughs> no. say I agree with you. Everything you no, say, no, 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 no. And, and I'm going to agree with you. So <laughs> hang on a moment. So re, re, regardless of whether it's right or wrong, what I think is important... I mean, when I say right or wrong, what I mean is the sort of the... Shall I call it a soft version of te technological determinism, so that we, no, we can no, agree no, on that? No, 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 because politics is absolutely central to this whole technological change. You see, the, the, the thing that, that I find intriguing, so which, which are the countries in, in, in Europe that have embraced this information and communication te technology kind of re revolution, the Scandinavians more than, than anything else? Mm. They also happen to be the countries where um, co so social cohesion and inclusiveness is probably, you know, furthest ad advanced. So that, that tells me that it's probably not the, te the te technology and what happens un underneath that, but something else that is going on there. That, that, and and my, my suspicion is that one of the things that is going on is that what, 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 okay, where our stories connect is that the effects of what you, you look at are probably exacerbated by um, major institutional cock-up that we call EMU, and that if you manage to stay out of that, then there are a lot of degrees of freedom that, that you have. Well, that's an interesting point. Okay. <laughs> uh, hands up. Yeah, one over here. No, it's, it's, sorry, you've already spoken. So, yeah. yeah. 
two very interesting talks. My, my question was more for Bob's. Um, it, when really it was a question of this, is the problem for sustaining the social model, do you think, more the single currency in itself, the inability to devalue and, and, and so on, or the German consensus for macroeconomic and, and social policy within, within the EMU and the weakening of wage bargaining, which may be contingently rather than necessarily linked to a single currency. So by the German consensus, I'm thinking of the auto-liberal rule-based approach to, to, to running a single currency, the suspicion of discretionary fiscal policy, and the obsession with competitiveness that you talked about via, via wage cuts, all of which leads to weak domestic demand and to inequality in the biggest economy, Germany, and then by extension the others. Is that a necessary function of a single currency in the European Union, or is it just a, a contingent fact about how this single currency has so far worked? That's my question. Thank you. I, <laughs> I, I don't know. And the, the reason I don't know is that there's a... There's, there's no control world in which we try another monetary union <laughs> with, with different... So, you know, so if, if you ask me, my, my, my suspicion is that, yes, we're talking about a monetary union that has these, these effects. It's hard to imagine. I mean, if, if you go... He's a good friend, okay? So I get Just so that, yeah. I mean, you and I have been having this discussion for almost 15 years. If you think of the political economy of, 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 of VMU... It's hard to imagine a different kind of EMU than the one that you have, given how it was started, how it de de developed, which <coughs> parameters became important and which, which not. Now, that said, there are plenty of well-functioning monetary unions in, in the world that don't seem necessarily to have these kinds of effects. Think of Ger Ger Germany, Switzerland. But there are also loads of them that seem to have these, these kinds of you know, in, uh, effects in terms of wage repression. Re think of, of, of the, 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 United well, the United States probably has a different problem. I mean, so it's, it's a very hard question to, to, to uh, how, how would you answer it? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good. Okay, there's a question but, uh, so at the back, right at the back there, please. Hi, just um, one really quick question about, more than anything, how do either of you think that the so-called lost generation of southern Europeans, that is on one hand, uh, the people, young people who have you know, high levels of unemployment amongst the youth in southern European countries, and at the same time, a large portion of the youth who sort of emigrate to more wealthier countries. So how, so how is this lost generation, in inverted commas, going to affect the provision of social services? And more importantly, is it going to revive sort of the provision of education or do you think that it's going to dampen and only worsen it because is it, are, you know, are, are sort of the elite and the policymakers going to realize that you know oh we actually left a generation behind or is, is nothing really going to change thank you mm. well a few, few, few years ago Luis Ricano who's a professor here in the management department he's, he's Spanish this is important um, he, he um, showed me, well, not just me, he, he pre presented a graph in a small, small workshop, which was absolutely amazing. And the, the graph basically showed that as <coughs> GDP per capita in Spain grew over the last 20-odd years, the number of, uh, the, the pro proportion of young people per cohort who went to university dropped. There's not, as, as far as I know, there's not a single country in the history of the world where that happened. 
right? Where, where you get wealthier and at the same time fewer people go to, to university. Now, what, what, what happened there was a massive perverse effect of um, the acid boom that you know, Spain was living on for about 10, 15 years, which was part of this story of how EMU channeled ca- capital flows from one side of the continent to, to another. Because that meant that you could very easily have a much better wage being an, a, a semi-skilled construction worker at the time than anything that you could have if you had a u- university de- degree. Now, that, that's, an, that's an important fact in itself. But imagine what that means. For about 15 years... Spain has produced fewer university graduates than they ever did did in the past. How is Spain ever going to sort of hop on the the bandwagon that David was talking about, in which you need more and more university degrees? This is is essentially one generation that's completely wiped out there. That's a a tragic kind of an outcome that I think we could have done with with that out. So if I was being a little bit more... A little bit more optimistic about this. <laughs> yeah, sorry. sorry. <laughs> um, if you think about, there, there are two examples of countries which, over a long period of time, did very badly as a result of a brain drain from universities. One was, one is Ireland, and the other is, the other is, is India. Let, let, leave aside India for the moment. But Ireland is a very interesting case. So. Ireland hugely invested in higher education when there were no jobs available for it. But so you got a large amount of migration out of Ireland to uh, to the United States and to and to other countries on the and country, uh, other countries in in Western Europe. And at a certain point in time, you got this, as it were, this this uh, spark, which gradually, which meant a high tech environment taking place and then you got a lot of move back of people who'd then gone to the United States or to to other parts of Western Europe and developed huge skills as a result of that. And I think one really interesting question, it's a question which applies to just as much to Eastern Eastern Central European countries as it does to to Southern European countries is in all of these countries, there's a lot of, politi- lot of political cr- pressure from m- middle-class parents for the state to provide higher education. And a lot of the children who go through higher education, take, whether we're talking about Romania or whether we're talking about Greece or wherever, leave the country and go to, go to, go to richer countries where they can get employment. So a really interesting question is, at some stage... Do these people come back to those countries when some sort of growth impulse has happened? Now, what's that growth impulse going to be? Well, it's very difficult to say, but one thing is that the <clears throat> that where something like biotech is really difficult for a country to develop without a really big science base, the software industry seems to be different from that. So one very interesting question is, is it going to be that software and, uh, and uh, information technology are going to provide a growth impulse which doesn't require a major scientific base? So that would be my, that would be my quasi-optimistic take, but without being optimistic. 
Well, pro- unfortunately, though, wouldn't it be even more optimistic if you took on board some of the things that Bob was saying about the southern European economies in the Eurozone, if, if they had some of those more freedoms to uh, change their own economy? Yes, no, well, I, I do. I mean, I think it's obviously, it's obviously an incredibly interesting debate, and it's uh, the, the, the nervousness about breaking out of the nervousness of Greece moving out of the euro is obviously a, it's partly a political question that there are a large chunk of voters who are really materially affected by Greece moving out of the out of the euro and it's also partly a fear of the unknown but of course if Greece did that, do that it's very it's actually in my view it's something where Greece which Greece could do if they could actually do the planning which would be necessary to do it and in my view, that's something which could, in principle, indeed, Simon says, have uh, a lot of potentialities in terms of uh, bringing people back. OK. Right. Well, we've run out of time. So instead of more questions, we're going to say thank you very much to uh, David Bolton.